I want to say hi to everybody who is a part of this service. My name is Jason, and I'm one of the pastors here at Forest Hill Church, and I'm thrilled that you're with us today. Before we jump into our passage and our teaching, uh, just a couple of quick remarks about reopening. Um, as you know, North and South Carolina are in phase one of a multi-phase step to reopening both churches, businesses, and schools. And as that's happening here at Forest Hill, our leadership is looking and planning and strategizing for what an opening date in the future could be. And as you know, we, we really care about being together, but we also, as a top priority, want to care about the safety and health of our congregation and staff. And so as we look at government recommendations and as we see more research come about, we also want to hear from you. So if you're in our database, you should have received an email this past week that included a survey. Please fill that out. Tell us how you're doing and, and what you're feeling about reopening yourself. It's really going to help us with not only when, but how we reopen. And that would be of huge service to us. Just know that most of all, we care, we appreciate you, and we can't wait to see you again soon. Well, we've been in this series called Trade Up, where we're looking at the Gospel of Mark, an, a biography of Jesus' life through one of his closest friends, an eyewitness account of that. And we're doing that because we're saying that we believe here at Forest Hill Church that we are about building bridges that connect everyone to dynamic life in Christ. And that, that dynamic life gets shown in the way Jesus actually lived. So we're trying to learn what we can about how to get it and what it looks like when we're experiencing it. And today, I want to talk to you about what I think is the single greatest barrier to keeping us from experiencing everything that God intended for our life. It's also one of the most difficult things to overcome. But the hope is, and the truth is, there is power in what Jesus has done for us to allow us to find it and live it. And when we do, it affects not just us individually, but our entire world around us. To do that, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 9. And in just a second, I want to read the story for you. Uh, and I'm going to ask you to stand in a moment of solidarity and also just kind of showing that we are putting ourselves under the authority of what Jesus has to say. But before I read that, let me set the context. Uh, this is right in the middle of three times where Jesus tells his best friends, his disciples, that he is about to experience betrayal and murder and then rise again. And just as he's done this for the second time, his disciples now leave the place that they are, and they're headed back to what we believe is Peter's house. And we pick up the story there in Mark chapter 9, verse 33. It says, They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone wants to be first... He must be last and servant of all. He took a child. He had him stand among them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one little child such as this in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but him who sent me. This is God's word. You can be seated. As I mentioned, this is the second time that Jesus has told them all about his death. And this is the second time that the reaction has been let's just say, less than what you would hope for. I mean, when you imagine, if, if you've just experienced from one of your best friends some of the worst, most terrible, scary news that you could imagine, and your response is not to take him seriously, but in an insensitive way to simply be focused on yourself. The first time it happened, Jesus had said this to Peter, and Peter's response is like, uh-uh, no way. 
Just because you think that this is the path, I don't want to be a part of that. You can't allow yourself to be killed. You were supposed to be the one to bring the power. You were supposed to be the one to help us get out of this issue with Rome. And we're following you because we want a piece of that. No, don't go getting yourself killed. Jesus responds to him in Mark 8. He calls him the devil. He says, you're thinking about this only from a human perspective. You're not actually caring about the kingdom or me. Well, here we are. Just a couple of pages later, he tells them the same thing again. And the disciples have an argument about which one of them is on top. Imagine they end up in Peter's house, we think. They're sitting there having the conversation. Jesus, just in a moment that brings so much uh, light to the situation, he asks, what were you arguing about? And everybody is shameful because they know this is wrong. They know that at that moment what they should be talking about is not which one of them is the best. But it's so deeply ingrained in who we are as humans that we almost can't help ourselves, can we? I mean, an idea of who's the greatest, always asking that question, it's become such a part of us, honestly, that we kind of become numb. We don't even really recognize how often we're thinking about that, of our position, of our place. The, the attempt to be the best it starts on playgrounds with little kids playing king of the hill. It follows us into, you know, how many followers do you have on Snapchat or Instagram? This idea for greatness, it's even consumed our culture right now in a little way. You know, because right now on Sunday nights, millions of us are glued to the television watching The Last Dance. Because we want to start a Twitter fight tomorrow about who's the greatest, who's the GOAT, right? Michael or LeBron or Kobe. Y'all know it's not even close, right? point is, we can't help thinking about greatness and greatness for ourselves. Jesus sees that in his friends, and he begins to teach them. He grabs a little kid, and look, a kid at that time did not have the same kind of value or places they do for us even now. I mean, they were to be seen and not heard, and if you could keep them from being seen, that's even better. The kids didn't have value until they became adults. But Jesus says, if you want to be great, you, you got to be last, like this, like one without power, without prestige or influence. This is the path for you. Well, it's such a deeply embedded, insidious, really dark desire that we have that, that it doesn't end here. In fact, the gravitational pull of being the greatest, it follows the disciples right into the next chapter, chapter 10. Because in there, we find Jesus for the third time tells them about his death. And after that, we read these words in Mark 10, starting in verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. What are they getting at in this moment? James and John have decided that not only being greatest, the greatest is important, but now, again, Jesus explains what's ultimately in front of him. And their first thought, Mark uses the word then that actually means like immediately. As soon as Jesus finishes talking about this, he says, James and John go to Jesus and say, look, we get it, okay? Maybe you're gonna be exiting soon, so we need to secure the bag right now. We need to get places of power and influence now. So we want you to do anything that we ask. That's what they're after. They're no longer just after who's known 
as the greatest. Now they're after actually having the power. And how many of us have experienced that same thing? It, it's been a part of human history from the very beginning. I mean, all the way back to Adam and Eve, you can find this, this quest, this thirst to have power. It was part of the first sin. Adam and Eve, they, they broke the rules. They broke the law because they said, like, look, great, we know you, God, but it's not enough to know you. We want to know what you know. <laughs> I want to be like you. I want to be you rather than love you. One generation later, Cain is killing Abel so that he can have power and influence. And it goes on and on through the rest of the history of the Bible and through the rest of each one of our individual lives. We've seen this desire to try to grab and grasp. It's, it's interesting, too, that it drives these two, James and John, to do something that we haven't seen happen yet. They're so willing to do whatever it takes to get power that they'll cut out one of their friends, someone that they loved. And, and here's the way I want to show you this. It's the first time I've ever seen it when studying this. But if you uh, have been around the Bible a little bit or church, you have know this. When you mention the three people that are always with Jesus, it's always Peter, James, and John. When Jesus in chapter 5 decides to take a few people into the room to raise a little girl from the dead, who does he bring? Peter, James, and John, when he goes up on the mountain and Moses and Elijah come to, to greet them and he has this transfiguration moment at the beginning of this chapter, guess who it is? Peter, James, and John. They are always mentioned together in the Bible except this moment. And at this time, for James and John, they want power by cutting Peter out. In fact, Matthew's gospel says that they don't only do it themselves, but they get their mom involved. Mrs. Zebedee comes with them and asks Jesus to give her a blank check. Hey, do whatever that my sons want for you. And that, that request is that they would be in the positions of prominence. I think this right here, this need and desire and willingness to do anything goes from just a grasp to actual hatred, dehumanization, violence, and murder. This is what we're experiencing even in our culture right now. See, here's the way this happens. They, they decide, just like many of us have decided, that for whatever place we find ourselves in, we want power, and so we are willing to do whatever it takes to get it. You know what's happened in the history of racism in this country and in every country? It's been the idea that in order for me to have that power, I have to move someone else out of the way. In order for me to, to grab it and to hold it, I've got to make sure that there is no rival to it. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to dehumanize someone else, to look at the one that might be able to have some, and you turn them into something less than human. You make it to where there's no way they could deserve what you have. Now, many of us have done this maybe not even in just these ways. We've done it in our own lives um, that hasn't applied to race. It could be at things like in your work or in your job where you have chosen to just drop little clues to, to bring up the fact that somebody else doesn't quite deserve the promotion that you want. And you begin to slowly sow seeds of doubt and distrust, of suspicion. But it never just stops there pull's too strong. The appetite is too great. Eventually, what happens, I believe, is you start looking at things that are different about you and someone else. And with a visible difference, now you can make the case. You try to make the case, or I try to make the case, that that person is less than. That's what happens in dehumanization. In almost any part of the world, where the color of someone's skin has been used to make them different, the next step is to begin to think of them as less than human. 
What follows from that is fear. And at the root of fear, or at the root of hate, is this fear. It's my belief now that I have power and I don't want to give it up. There's no way I can let this thing go. And when greed and the quest for power come together, they begin this unholy partnership that's almost impossible to dislodge. It always finds fertile soil in the human heart and will do anything to hold it, including selling people out, including hatred, racism, and murder. Right now, our whole country is dealing with what this looks like. I think we're seeing the effects of this largest barrier to the life that Jesus asked us to come and find and follow him. And there's only one prescription. It's such a deeply rooted thing that Jesus gives a prescription to the guys one more time in this passage. One more time, he says, there's only one way for you to overcome it. You can't just think your way out of this. It's going to require something radical. And here's what he says. Jesus calls them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, if you want to be great, you become a servant. He uses a word, diakonos, that's about like waiting on tables. It's a person who places themselves into a lower position in order to serve someone, to, to wait on them, to be able to address and meet their needs. That's how you become great. But he says, if you want to be greatest, you become a slave to everyone. You actually give up all of your rights. Jesus says, and this is not something that I'm unwilling to do or I'm asking you to do that I won't. This is actually what I've been trying to tell you. Uh, me, the Messiah, the Savior, I have come to fully serve all of humanity by living the life that you couldn't live, dying the death that you deserved, paying the penalty for sin, and ultimately giving up all of my rights, becoming the slave of all so that you could find this life, so that you don't have to be in a place separated from God forever. It's the essence of reconciliation, servanthood, becoming the lowest and giving up rights. This is where the kingdom or the ethics of the kingdom of God clashes most with the ethics of culture and the world around us. It is precisely here because everything about who we are and, and the way the world works tells us that you have to grab what's yours. You have to work hard to jump up and to grab and to take. And if you don't, somebody else will. And power is the way that you do it. That's what Jesus says. Look, all the people around you, they exercise authority. They get power and they hold it and they'll do anything it takes to keep you down. But it's not going to be this way with you and me. He says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to learn to be a servant. You're going to give up your rights so that somebody else can find it. This is love. You know, it's interesting. The preeminent virtue in the kingdom of God is, is not power. Even though Jesus is ultimately powerful. The preeminent virtue is service because service is love expressed. We can say we love someone. We can say that we've uh, experienced that love for them with words. But until action follows it, you don't know that it's really love. 
My favorite definition of love is to will and to work for the good of someone else. It's to desire and then to put action and effort into having someone else experience the good. And that's what the kingdom of God is all about. So when we face a moment like we have now, where once again, we're seeing the effect of a power grab that turns into racism that causes someone to be unjustly and violently murdered, like the whole country is talking about with Ahmad Arbery right now. When we see this rear its head again, we have to figure out how do we address this? And it begins inside our individual human hearts. It doesn't end there, but it starts there. And Jesus gives not only the prescription, becoming a servant of all, choosing to, to step down and become last, but he also gives us a diagnostic tool. Because when I begin to apply what he asks, when I begin to think through and choose to step down and relinquish influence, to give away power, to be able to become lesser, it exposes the places in my heart where I still want to grasp. Jesus, he says, there's only one way out of this problem. It's a word that we use in church a lot. It's a word that sometimes gets misinterpreted or confused. But it's really this. The, the prescription, the medicine, is repentance. Now, when I say that word, I know right away some of you are thinking like, ah, of, you know, saying that you're sorry. But repentance biblically is way more than that. Repentance is even more than just stopping doing the wrong thing. The idea of repentance in the Bible is this. It's used in the New Testament as an idea of changing your mind. It's used of turning away from one thing and turning towards something else. To repent means that you lament, that you grieve, that you acknowledge the places that are broken in you. It means that you turn around and stop doing the stuff that is not of God's kingdom. And it means you walk actionally and intentionally towards the good. See, repentance is the, it's the essence of followership. Like when Jesus says, come, he doesn't say, come and agree with me. Not that here's a, a couple of thoughts that you have to intellectually assent to. He says, come and follow me. Walk in the direction and the way that I'm moving. And when we do that, that's the walk of repentance. That's the life of a Christ follower. So what is repentance of this grab for power look like in our lives and in this moment that we find right now? I think, you know, if you spent some time this past week and, and you had to wrestle as I did with uh, what seeing the effects of racism in another murder, you've gotten probably to the place where it feels like it's impossible to change. You, you might have begun to believe that uh, it's just too difficult, it's too hard. Um, but, but this idea of repenting, of turning, of following, of an intentional action, this serving being the antidote and the diagnosis, it's actually a part of not only who uh, any follower of Jesus is, but it's, it's a part embedded in our church at Forest Hill of who we want to be. See, here's what we've said just recently. We want to be a church that's building bridges to connect people to life, and one of the biggest barriers to that life is the racism that stops it. The gospel moves at the speed of trust. And one of the places where it's broken most is between those of different skin colors. And so we are going to be about building a, a church, a community, as we've said in one of our four values, that cultivates kingdom diversity, that chooses to do whatever we can to lower and, and demolish walls and things that separate us so that we can become, as God had in his mind, a diverse people. But diversity is not the end goal. 
adversity is simply a way for us to hear, to listen, and to learn how we go about tearing down things like racism that keep people from the life that Jesus offers. It requires us to be a church. If we want to actually succeed at this, it requires us to be a church that cares about reconciliation, that cares about justice. Because you can be a diverse place and still not be a church that's after reconciliation. You can be a, a church where there are lots of people who have come in or are part of it, but everybody's assimilated to just one majority culture. You can be a church that's diverse and not have unity, but that's what Jesus says this is about. And the way you get it is by choosing to go last, by choosing the path of humility and service. So before I talk about that. I just want to bring up a couple of things that have really been on my heart this week as I've tried to think about how do we move knowing that this is where we find ourselves. How do we put into practice this repentance, this actionable, intentional way to move from where we are to where we need to be? And, and one of the things that I wanted to share with you, there's, I, I'm not trying to make this like a, a programmatic five steps to deal with racism right now. It's not. The first thing we need to do is to acknowledge it and to lament the fact that it's still here and to search our own hearts and choose to tear it out by doing what Jesus asked. And, and one of the people that's helped me understand this tremendously is a guy named Jamar Tisby. And Jamar Tisby has a book that I'd love for you to pick up. It's called The Color of Compromise. And, and in that, he talks about this, the arc of racial justice, what's needed. And, the, and he says that arc, the A-R-C, is this. It's awareness, it's relationship, and it's commitment. And look, awareness, first, I mean, the way that we get awareness right now is, is totally open to any of us. There's some books that you could choose. There's a book called Divided by Faith by Emerson and Smith that's great. There's a book that I've been looking at that's Oneness Embraced by Dr. Tony Evans. Uh, these books and other things that you can find fairly easily will help you understand what's happening, what has happened, the history of racism in this country, the history of power grabbing that fuels it and greed, and also how can we go about addressing it. You can become aware by uh, educating yourself, and we should do that. But second, it's about relationships. See, reconciliation inherently, it's relational, it's personal, it's incarnational. Jesus, when God chose to reconcile us back to him, he didn't do it by sending a list of steps. He came in the flesh and he relationally made it possible for us to connect to each other. And relationship allows for you to hear things that, that we need to hear, especially those of us who find ourselves in the majority culture. We need to be able to hear from those brothers and sisters who are hearing, experiencing emotions different from ours. This past week, I had a chance to talk to several friends about what was going on in their hearts and in their heads. And, and I was on a call with 30-something pastors through our Four Charlotte network in the city talking about what churches are feeling and doing. And before we got to any kind of programmatic thing, we just said, what do you feel? And you know what I heard most of all through those relationships? I heard I'm tired. You probably have heard that too. I'm tired. I'm tired of wondering where I'm safe. I'm tired of feeling like there is no safe place. I'm not safe in my car, Philando Castile. I'm not safe in my apartment, Botham Jean or Brianna Taylor. I'm not safe out for a jog, Ahmad Arbery. I'm not safe in my church, Mother Emanuel Church. When you have a relationship where you can hear and experience from a brother or a sister 
what they feel. It causes you to act differently, to expose yourself under the light of God's word and his gospel and to say, I can't allow this to continue. It changes the dynamic. And so we need relationships. And thirdly, we need commitment. Commitment to do whatever it takes to stop this. I believe the time is right now that for all of us, no matter where you find yourself, on the color spectrum or any of the other ways that we would divide, we need right now to commit and say, that's it. No more. I'm starting with me, and I will begin to root out the things that are seeds, but maybe they haven't fully sprouted. Maybe they haven't fully got there. And I know that any of us can say, but that's not me, or, or that's not the way that I think. And, and I get that. But I also think that every time we get made uncomfortable or uneasy, by something that's as polarizing as this issue, that if we're a follower of Jesus, we have to ask, am I uncomfortable because this goes against, contradicts Jesus' life and his message? Or am I uncomfortable because it's pushing on things that I've long held to be presuppositions that I want to hold on to? So we're going to commit. We need to commit to saying, that's it. And we're going to work to become servants, individually first, to choose last so that we can serve those who need it. We don't have, and I, I thought about how do I do, do I give a bunch of steps for how we combat it? And here's the thing, and I borrow this from Jamar Tisby as well. We don't have a how-to problem. We have a want-to problem. The question is not, do we have the weapons that can fight against this? As followers of Jesus, the question is, do we have the will to do what he asked. See, all these thousands of years before, he looked directly in the eyes of people that one day would allow this, this truth to change their life. This is why I have hope that we don't have to stay here because they allowed the truth of the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus, to turn them into people who believed that they could turn the world upside down. We get Peter who struggled with this concept later on in 1 Peter 4.10 saying things like everyone should use the gifts that you have to serve one another. The one who pushed back against being the servant of all and wanted power ends up being one of the foremost mouthpieces to choose it. And here's the thing. It's not going to be easy. I recognize that. It's not easy for any of us. But we have to. It's necessary. It's possible. And you know, one of the things that I hear the most is as we think about how to do this thing, is this idea that, um, that I, I'm not sure how far to go. I'm not sure uh, how much I have to do. And it made me think about this idea that in our culture, there's this ladder. And the ladder is, is that of where you find yourself in position of privilege or uh, with your experience or history or whatever. We find ourselves all on this ladder. And Jesus, when he was speaking this to the disciples, he said, if you want to be greatest, if you want to be great, you got to get down to the bottom rung. There were 13 of them, 12 disciples in Jesus, 13 walking. And he says, the way that you become great is not to be number, number one, it's to be number 13. And so, so many of us have felt as if, you know, we're somewhere on this ladder and everybody finds ourselves here. And, and we felt as if maybe some of us feel like I, I worked, I, I climbed this. I mean, I did everything that was necessary. I paid a price to get here. Some of us be, especially those in a majority culture. We were just born at a certain rung. The question is not, where are you starting from? 
The question that Jesus looks at his followers and says, if you really want to be in my kingdom, the question is not how high you start. It's how low that you go. And this, the reason that many of us struggle with the will is because this is hard. Every step to choose to relinquish power, to let go of influence, to allow somebody else to take an opportunity, to choose to serve and make them better, to choose maybe even to step all the way back so that there is nothing left for you to become the ultimate service and give up your rights. To do that is difficult. It's the way of repentance. It's the way of followership. It's the way that we will begin to eradicate the root of racism. And I believe it's the way that we ultimately find life. I don't think that this is easy. I do think Jesus gave us the prescription because he says the life that you're looking for, the one of purpose and meaning and joy, this is where it's found, in giving yourself up. And he went to a cross and the gospel says, not only should you do this, but you can do this. I have given you the power. You don't have to grab all of the power now or all the position now because one day I will bring you into my kingdom and there you will experience everything that you think you're missing out on. So you can choose to live open-handedly and to serve everyone around you. This is for all of us wherever you find yourself. But it's for all of us. And so I'd like to ask now that we would pray. And I know this message is not easy to hear, but I'd ask that you'd pray with me and we would just allow whatever truth is in this and whatever God would want to do with that truth to expose places in our hearts where we need to let him give us the ability to serve to give up our rights for the sake of his kingdom and someone else. I'd also like to pray and ask you to join me in prayer that we would continue to be a church, that when Jesus looks at us, we're not arguing about who's the greatest, whose rights have been trampled or who has the, the ability or the authority to do what, but that we be the person who's arguing about how do I get down to the bottom rung the fastest because that's where the life is. Would you join me in that prayer? Father, I thank you, first of all, that the life that you say is possible is actually the one that I really want and that everyone watching really wants. That in our deepest place, despite what our nature, our, um, the way that we would just go towards grabbing something, whether it's position or money or influence or whatever it is, that that life actually is not the one that we want and that you've made it clear that we find everything that we could possibly desire in you. I thank you that not only have you made that true, but you've given us through your death and resurrection, the ability to live as Jesus, as a servant of all, and to find the joy embedded in that as we do it. So God, I pray first that you would help every single person, including me, that is a part of this right now, to examine ourselves and to allow you to examine us and to say, Am I still trying to grasp and grab? Is the greatest still my goal? And where that's true, Lord, would you allow us to begin through the act of repentance, of following you, to begin to put to death those places that don't line up to your definition of greatest? 
You said if we'd let you define the terms, we can have ambition for greatness. It's just that that greatness needs to be serving everyone around us. I pray, God, in this church that you would begin to use us all, from all of our backgrounds, with all of our ethnicities, that we would begin to become a place and that we would more fully live into that place that says we will stand up for and fight for the dismantling of this racism because it's not of your kingdom and for the sake of and in the love of our brothers and sisters. Father, I pray that you would give us, you would give us an unbelievable will and commitment to do just that. I pray today, Father, for those who are a part of our church and family, who are grieving, who are tired, who feel overlooked, who feel like there is no hope, who feel angry. Father, I pray for for all of us, that you would, in your spirit, bring peace and comfort. And I pray that you'd cause hope to rise, even as we not perfectly, with all of the ways that we still fail, even as we begin this journey or continue this journey you've already put us on. God, I pray that even that would allow some hope to rise. I pray that you would cement relationships together in ways that are surprising as we choose to love across all of the things that would separate us. And Jesus, I pray that justice would be done in the situations that we find and we see around us right now, but ultimately that your kingdom would come and your will, which is a will of justice, would be done soon. I believe that if we will stick together in this and we will choose to follow you and take you at your word, that you could do something incredible in our lifetime and we could see it. Would you please start now? We ask Jesus in your resurrected name, amen.